Well, good morning, Chili Bible. A uh, couple of quick things here before we begin our time in the Word together. First of all, if you are a widow, if you are widowed, um, and uh, you are willing to talk about that experience with me, uh, we are having a luncheon today at Grecian Gardens, and uh, I am hosting that luncheon. And uh, if you are widowed, we'd like to uh, hear about your experiences. Uh, I want to learn from you uh, about that. And uh, so if you would uh, join us, there's a group of us going to be down there at about 12.15. And uh, we would like to uh, treat you to lunch and, and then uh, talk with you about uh, your experiences and, uh, and how we as a church can certainly improve our ability to provide care for you. So invite you to that. Um, if you weren't aware of that, um, no problem. Come anyway. Okay, we want to have you, and we want to host you and, and, and learn from you. Uh, second thing, uh, the Great Oaks annual banquet is coming up. It had been in the fall, and uh, they're trying to move it to the spring, and I'm involved in that ministry. Uh, it's an exciting way of bringing the gospel to underprivileged kids in Peoria County. And, um, and so if you are interested in being part of that banquet, attending that, hearing about what what is going on there you can go for free on me and um, I will uh, provide you with dinner and all that kind of thing and learn you can learn some about that ministry I've got tickets for you uh, if you get them from somebody else I'll probably charge you for them but I will I'm sponsoring the table so uh, if you want to go um, go ahead and let me know um, now let uh, with all that kind of as uh, it's just announcements. Let's pray, and then let's get into the Word, okay? God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. As the Scripture says, what people ever had a God so near that He dwells among them and speaks to them like our God? There is no one in all the earth that can claim the relationship with you, Father, that we as your adopted sons and daughters can claim. That the Holy Spirit dwells within us and among us as your people, and you have spoken to us in your word, and you speak to us by your spirit day by day. And Father, we are overwhelmed with the privilege of relationship with you. Now, Father, we pray that your word would speak today to us and that we would be changed by it, by your spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been around a little while around here, you know that I love weddings. I do. I like to do weddings. I like to go to weddings. I think every part of a wedding is fun. Uh, almost everybody is happy. Uh, on the wedding day, right? Except usually the mother of the bride. Um, she's unhappy a lot of the time. But, uh, but the bride is usually happy. The groom is usually happy. The father of the groom is usually over there laughing. You know, he's like, son, you do not know what you're in for. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it's just really a great 
A great celebration, a great time. I like the big dress, the music, the cake, the party, the processional, the kiss. I think it's all fun and exciting. And especially when you're watching two people that you love and care about uh, who have made it their goal to honor God with their wedding and with their marriage, it is really cool to participate in and to, and to see and what they're doing. My favorite part of the whole thing is the vows. It really is. Because these two people, this is, you know, the vows are what sets a wedding apart from just a party that a couple of people are having. And what they're doing is that they're standing before God and all of their friends and family, and they make what are meant to be unalterable, irrevocable, extravagant promises to one another to be steadfast and loyal and faithful and unwavering in their love and commitment to each other for a lifetime. And it is a holy moment. It really is. It's an amazing thing. And in that moment, that couple is making a covenant that is as close as two finite people ever come to the kind of steadfast, loyal, unwavering, faithful love that God demonstrates to us in His covenant with us. In fact, that's how God designed it to operate. You remember, if you read Ephesians 5, what you see there is Paul says that what we do as human beings, as, as men and women, when we stand before God and we make our covenant promises to each other in His presence and with His name, in fact, I always try to work that into the vows that I have people do when I'm doing a wedding. In the name of God, I vow to do the following. right? So that we underline the point of what we're doing. That, that Paul says in Ephesians 5 that our marriages, if you're a, a, a Christian and you are married, that your marriage is an imitation or a copy of or built on the pattern of something bigger and higher, which is the relationship between Christ and His people, the church, the bride, if you will, of Christ, us. And so if you want to be a good husband, you first have to be a good bride, if you will. If you want to be a good wife, you need to be the bride of Christ first. And then you imitate what Christ does in your uh, in his relationship with you, in your relationship with this other person. That's what Ephesians 5 is all about. It's about us imitating what Christ has done. And I bring all this up because I think the parallels are important. Because we know, we know that Jesus is going to demonstrate covenant love and faithfulness to us. He is. But one of the things that is regularly repeated throughout the Scriptures is the fact that we, as the bride of Christ, likewise need to demonstrate steadfast love and covenant faithfulness to God as well. That we don't get to be unfaithful to our commitment to God. Amen? In fact, if you read your Old Testament, uh, one of the images that comes up over and over and over and over again, 
and most vividly probably in the book of Hosea, is the idea that if you are part of the people of God, that you, in a sense, are married to God and to, and to uh, rebel against Him and to deviate in your relationship with Him is to be unfaithful in the same kind of way as in a marriage. And to be accused by the Lord, in a sense, of spiritual adultery uh, because you were unfaithful in your commitment to God. And the passage I'm about to read today uh, from Luke chapter 14 um, is a, a passage about where Jesus is talking to his disciples, those who want to follow him, about covenant love and faithfulness and commitment to him. And how if you're going to be his disciple, you're going to have to demonstrate covenant love and faithfulness to God over a lifetime. And that wavering commitment is not what Jesus is looking for. So if you've got your Bible, I want, to, want you to uh, follow along with me as I read here. This is, uh, these are Jesus' words from Luke chapter 14, beginning verse 25. We'll go down through verse 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Now, verse 25 is really interesting to me. If you look at it, one of the things that fascinates me about Jesus is the fact that whenever the crowd gets too big, he starts trying to run people off. You notice that? Jesus is not impressed by a big crowd. He is impressed by a big commitment, but he is not impressed by a big crowd. And he knows that in this crowd, it says great crowds. A great crowds were following him. Big mobs of people thought, you know, this is really cool. This teacher from Nazareth that goes around healing people and saying some really neat things. I really like that. Lots of people then, as lots of people now, were attracted to Jesus. And there were lots of people in the crowd. And he turns to this big crowd and he says, Hey, you want to follow me? Great. It's simple. Hate your entire family. And by the way, hate your own life. And pick up your cross and follow. 
Now these, if you're paying attention, keeping score at home, these are some radical words from a radical man who demands radical commitment from those who follow him. This is the harshest, hardest thing that Jesus ever says about the cost of following him about the cost of discipleship. Does Jesus really mean that we should hate every member of our families and even our own lives? No, He doesn't mean that. But you do need to understand what He does mean. It's a Jewish way of speaking about the relative degree of commitment between two things. Okay? So as an example, in the Old Testament... Where, Jesus, where uh, God speaks about His relationship with the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom. He says, Jacob have I loved and Esau I hated. Right? Does that mean that He hated all the Edomites and wanted to see them killed and condemned to hell and all the rest of that? No. But it means that he had a special relationship with Israel that is far different than his relationship with the Edomites. Amen? He, the Israel, people of Israel were the covenant people of God. The chosen people. The ones to whom the prophets and the Scripture came. The one through whom uh, the Messiah would be born, etc. And so there's a special kind of relationship that God has with them. And so in saying this, what Jesus is saying is this, that compared with your relationship with me, there isn't a second place. There isn't anything in second place. Not your relationship with your spouse. Not your relationship with your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or even your own children or even your own life. Jesus is first and everything else is far distant second, if at all. That's a radical call. The idea is is that if you're running a race and is that Jesus finishes first Goes in, takes a shower, has a snack, takes a nap, uh, wakes up, and then family comes in after that. Understand? It's a radical commitment that we are being called to. That we're going to put Jesus first and most above all other things. And we're going to filter all of our decisions in life and all of our time commitments and all of the commitments that we make with our money and everything else through the grid of putting Jesus first. And so this is not something to do lightly. This is not something that you do lightly. Contrary to a lot of the theology that is current in our day, a lot of the people who sell a lot of Christian books, appear, some of them on Christian radio, a lot of the guys you see on Christian, quote, Christian TV, um, will tell you, follow Jesus and get everything that you selfishly want for yourself delivered to you. Follow Jesus and He will make you healthy and wealthy and happy and fix your marriage and uh, make you really prosperous 
and everything will be great. And basically, it's like Jesus delivers the American dream. Is that what Jesus says? Jesus says, no. Follow me. Put me first. And then on top of that, by the way, you're going to pay some cost. There's going to be a cost to follow me in the way that I call you. You are probably going to have some costs relationally with people that you know. Karen and I uh, worked in a ministry years ago called Need Him, where people would call in. You know, they dial one eight 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 Need Him, and they would call in and uh, talk to us on the phone, and we'd share the gospel with them. And it's a great ministry. Um, we worked this phone bank answering calls. And, and in fact, the later at night it gets, the better the phone calls are. The best shift in the, in, in the entire evening is the two to four shift when all the bars close. And people are, call you up and they realize that, you know what, I drank all, all of my money up and I'm still miserable and in pain. I need something better. I want to call and talk to somebody about Jesus, right? And they have all kinds of people that come to faith over the phone. But the director of that ministry was a guy named Bob. And, uh, and his wife, he was not married at the time that we knew him, his wife had divorced him because she had decided that she would rather have a bigger house in a nicer suburb than be married to him and follow Jesus. True story. That may happen to you if you follow Jesus. It may cost you your relationship with your spouse. That happens. It may cost you relationship with your family. I read recently of a, a pastor and a couple came to his church and, and they, he said, they said, after the service, can we talk to you? And he said, sure, you can talk to me. He, they said, great. So they sat down and began to talk. They said, you know, we're really not interested in coming to church here, but we do want to talk to you because our child wants to become an, a missionary and we think that's the worst thing that they could possibly consider. And we're not even Christians and we just think that's ridiculous. That my kid who has all this talent and giftedness would waste his life telling other people about a make-believe deity. Can you intervene? Pastor said, not in the way you want me to. Because <laughs> I'm going to encourage him to do it. <laughs> but, but it may cost you relationships with your family. Lots of people, some of them in this congregation, have had members of their family turn away from them because... Well, ever since you got religion, I'm not interested in talking to you. Large portions of the Muslim world, the Hindu world, among Orthodox Jews, to, be, to, be, to become a Christian is at a minimum to be disowned. A lot of the Muslim world or the Hindu world, it's to actually be physically threatened. And maybe even killed. 
Jesus might call you to move a long distance away from your family to serve him. That may happen. He might call you to do that. Jesus might call you to live a life that is radically uncomfortable and is deeply painful. He might put you in some circumstances that you don't like and that aren't a lot of fun. In fact, if you look at verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There are two words I want you to underline in that text. Okay? The word bear and the word the words come after. Those are both verbs. And they are both in the present tense. And in the Greek present tense, what that I'm not going to get real technical on Greek grammar here, but but what it emphasizes is ongoing, repeated action in the present. So it's not, in other words, Jesus is not saying, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross once. He's not emphasizing the decision to follow Jesus. He's emphasizing the process of following Him. That this is an ongoing, repeated thing in the present day. That you will be bearing your cross as you are coming after Him. And to bear your cross... See, a lot of people get this confused. Uh, In fact, you even see this sometimes around Easter. Uh, You'll see a guy dragging this whole thing down the street, right? But that's not what they did. Uh, When they crucified people, you know, they had the vertical piece and then you had the cross piece that they fastened your arms to called the patibulum and what they would do is they would tie you onto this thing that way they had you half done when they got you to the place they were going to kill you and you would carry that through the streets and it marked you as a dead man walking and so when Jesus is saying carry your cross, He is saying you are going to be be living your life for Me as if your life has already ended. That on a daily basis, you're going to be living your life for Me not as your life, but as the life I call you to live. Now is this a popular message? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say no. <laughs> right? What most of us want is for us to get to live our own life however we want and for Jesus to ratify it and bless it. <laughs> right? But Jesus says, no, no. You live the life I call you to and your life and choices that you wanted to make prior to following me get to die instead. And that it will be the greatest blessing of your life if you do. This is, this is, this is not a call to an easy life. 
This is a call to a life that is worth living, following a man who is worth dying for. Amen? This is not a call to an easy life. This is a call to a life that is worth living. That as you look back over your life, you would happily do it all again that you might honor the Lord. One of the great stories of Christian martyrdom is from um, early Christian history of a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was told, if you recant, if you will turn away from Jesus, then we will not put you to death. You're an old man and we do not want to kill you. But if you will recant, then we will let you go. But if you won't, we will burn you at the stake in the public square. Polycarp said, for 86 years, Jesus has been faithful to me. How could I be unfaithful to him at the end of it? And they burned him to death. But Polycarp said, I don't care. Though it costs me my life, I don't care. Because guess what? I already gave up my life 86 years ago. And I'm going to follow Jesus because He is worth it. But it's going to be costly. And if you're, because it's going to be costly, you need to consider what the costs are before you start. That's the point of verses 28 to 32. Uh, Jesus says, look, this crowd of people, you've got to consider the costs. And he gives two parables to explain his meaning. In the first, he talks about someone building a tower. And the kind of tower he has in mind is probably one that's attached to somebody's house. And the idea behind this kind of a tower is that you would build it up uh, actually taller than the walls of the city around you so that you, could, you, had some, uh, you had a good view, you could see out. But then in addition to that, if the city got attacked, you had a, some, a strong place for you and your family to flee to that would buy you some additional time. You had some security about you. You know, you had kind of a panic room, if you will, that you could get into and be protected. But this, is, this kind of thing is not, not an inexpensive addition onto your house. Uh, this is something that is going to take some time. Now, how many of you all have done renovation projects at your house? All right, raise your hand. All right, now, now I'm an optimistic guy. Um, and so Karen just knows, she's the accountant, she's the practical one in our house, and she knows that any project will not be completed in less, in less than three trips to the hardware store, and that it will cost three times as much and, and take twice as long as whatever I told her at the beginning. <laughs> right? Married almost 22 years, she knows me, right? And so she's just built a little Joe Horn factor into the calculation, right? If I said it was going to be $100, it's probably going to be $300. If I said it was going to take a week to do, it'll be, about, it'll be done by the end of the month, right? And um, maybe some of you other men are like that too. But, uh, 
But you've got to, if you're going to start into one of these projects, you've got to carefully consider how much it's going to cost you. Because one of, the, one of the most embarrassing things you can do if you're building an addition onto your house is to just get it started. Right? And all your neighbors can see all the earth-moving equipment come in and walls going up and all this kind of thing. And then maybe you get Tyvek on and the roof on and so forth, right? And then it sits there because you run out of money for siding and windows. Right? Uh, there was a house down on the north side of Dallas that Karen and I, when we lived down there, we would drive by this place on the way to, to and from church. And, and this, this house had the most spectacular fencing in the world. It was all this really beautiful uh, white uh, iron fencing that went all the way around this massive place. And they had, two, uh, they had two big brick columns at the entrance. It looked like something off of the you know, off of a scene of a movie, right? And at the, at the top of it, they had these two bronze horses kind of reared up on their hind legs. It was spectacular. And it went back to this house. And the house is, you know, two stories. It's probably 10,000 square feet under roof in this house. It was massive. Looked like something from, like, Batman, okay? And, uh, and they had the beautiful, you know, brick fireplace up both ends. They had, um, they had the roof on. And then they had run out of money somewhere around the time they put windows in. And there was no siding. And uh, what siding there was was just the sheeting. And it had all turned black from the weather. And it set that, set that way for years afterward. Because... Whoever was in the process of building that thing ran out of money. And everybody would drive by and do exactly what Jesus says in the parable. Ah, that rich guy ran out of money. Spent it all on bronze horses. Right? And uh, forgot to get a house that he could actually live in. And, um, and Jesus' point in this is it's far better to never start project than to get partly finished or mostly done and never get all the way there. And the reason that you want to avoid that is you want to avoid being mocked by everyone who sees you for what you left undone. When somebody who runs out of money with his mighty tower, looks pretty foolish. So does a person who starts following Jesus with all kinds of zeal and then kind of fizzles out when it gets hard. They become an object of scorn. Not necessarily to other Christians, but to the world around them. In fact, the old cynic Voltaire said of Christians that he knew that Christianity, so far as he could tell, was an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. Right? In other words, a whole lot of activity at the beginning. Not much after that. And a lot of times people will say things like this, well, you know, I knew it wouldn't last. I guess she finally grew up and got smart 
Or, yeah, he's just another one of those phony religious people. You know, they get religion and then nothing ever really changes. Right? So Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be costs. Are you willing to pay them when the bills come due? This other parable is different. It's, the first one is about the cost that you will pay if you decide to follow Jesus and making sure you're fully committed all the way to the end of the road. But the second parable is the cost you will pay if you decide not to. In both of them, there's a potential for your resources to be inadequate. And, but in this one, the consequences of inadequate resources are much more dire. A king who loses a war loses his throne and very often loses his life in the ancient world. And so if your army isn't strong enough to withstand the one who's coming against you with twice as many troops as you've got, you better hurry and make peace before he gets to your doorstep. And the point that Jesus is making is this, is that the king is coming. And his resources are greater than yours. Amen? And he will conquer. And so while he is yet a ways off, it would do you good to make peace with him now. Amen? And so there are costs both directions. You need to consider that yes, there are going to be costs of following Jesus on the one hand, but there are also going to be costs of not following Jesus. And when Revelation talks about the man seated on a white horse whose name is called Faithful and True, and out of his name, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to slay the wicked, it means that. God is serious about that. That judgment is coming for those who have not made peace with God prior to His arrival. And so you need to decide which cost you're willing to pay. And the invitation is essentially this. You think you're big enough and bad enough and strong enough to stand against the king who is coming, you go ahead. But if not, you may prefer these set of costs over here. Of making peace with God and following Jesus now. And after you've considered the cost, then follow Jesus. Verse 33 continues this way. He says, Therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That is the swap. If you're going to be a Christian, that's the swap that you're making. I will give to God everything that I am and have if I might know and follow and be received by God into His family. Jesus has already done everything necessary. In fact, He has paid the supreme price to put you into His family. And He has said to you, essentially, I will do anything. I will pay any cost to make you mine. But there is still, at some point, a decision that you must make. 
whether or not you will follow Jesus. And it is going to be costly. It will cost you everything you have. All that you are. You trade your life for the one who gave his life for you. Good theology does not save people. It does not. Believing the right things about Jesus is not the key to the kingdom. There are lots of people who will be in hell who believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. The issue is, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead from you? And have you committed yourself to Him by faith in response? Acknowledging historical facts doesn't change anything about anybody's eternal life. Committing yourself to Jesus does. And when you do, what you're like is the person in the parable Jesus told, do you remember this one? says that a man found a great treasure in a field. And I don't know what the great treasure was, but let's imagine, you know, just to take me back to being a kid, you know, I remember Treasure Island, right? And they dig up this, this buried chest full of gold coins, right? And, and so imagine that's the treasure. It's... 300 pounds of gold coins in a chest, right? And you find this. You finally find, you're digging around New Orleans, you finally find Jean Lafitte's treasure or whatever, right? And, um, and you find it. What do you do? Well, if you find it, you bury it back up and you mark the spot with GPS, right? And then you go down to the public records office and you find out who owns that piece of property, and you mortgage, beg, borrow every dime you can get from all your friends and family and whatever it takes to get that piece of property bought. Right? Why? Because the treasure that you have found is worth everything that you have. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is that He is the treasure in the field. He is worth Everything that we have. And it is a great swap. How many of you would trade all, the, all of your possessions for a billion dollars? Yeah, I would, right? Unless we got any, I don't think we have any billionaires here. Uh, if you are, see me. There's some things we want to get done around the church. All right. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, some bathroom updates we would like to make happen. But, uh, but you would obviously trade, you know. I'm like, okay, so uh, I got, today I got pocket lint and, uh, you know, uh, a few pieces of plastic in my pants, right? But I'll trade all of that for a uh, for billion dollars right now. Why? Because I'm going to come out way far ahead on this transaction. In the same way, Though following Jesus is costly, you're going to come out way ahead on this transaction. That's the idea. 
And so when you read Jesus say, if you don't renounce everything that you have, you cannot be my disciple. What I'm trying to explain to you is this. That it's worth it. You're going to come out miles and piles ahead on the deal. In fact, you would be a fool not to take that offer. What a lot of people do is they focus on the cost and they don't ever look at the benefit side of the ledger. And the benefit is humongous. You know, G uh, Rick Rosetto read to us the Beatitudes at the beginning. You know what one of my favorite what my favorite one is in the whole thing? Where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, what does it say? See God. Think about this. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, will see God face to face. Now, I'm a guy who likes the museums. I love those. Okay, in fact, I think I annoy my family whenever we go to one because I'm the guy who wants to read every plaque, right? Okay, because I just think—I mean, we went to one. We were on vacation here a couple of weeks ago. We went to the Naval Avi National Naval Aviation Museum, which is amazing. And you see all every plane that the Navy has ever flown. Well, they've got a—they've got one of them there. And you can look at them all, and, and, and some of them you can sit in. It's really cool, right? And I want to read all the plaques. But in comparison with seeing God, this isn't even the warm-up act. Amen? I don't care if we're talking about the Louvre or the British Museum or some other high-toned place, you know, the, the Guggenheim, whatever. I don't care what you think is beautiful to, to behold. Compared with seeing God, it doesn't rate. Compared to being adopted into the family of God, it doesn't come close. In fact, no experience in this life comes close to what it will mean to be in relationship with God in His presence for eternity. And so it is worth it. It is worth it. Now, it is doubtful to me that most of us will probably ever be martyrs for the sake of Christ. Uh, unless um, God would call you uh, somewhere where it, it would very be, it'd be very unlikely in America that you would have to literally lay your life down for the cause of Christ. Like He did with the apostles. But... Jesus does call every one of us to walk in the way of the cross, to carry your cross daily and to follow Him. And to recognize that your life is not your own, but instead that you are meant to offer a living sacrifice to God every day of your life. Just like Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. And it will be a sacrifice. It will be a sacrifice. It may include some of the relationships within your family. It may include hard days that you live or hard months or hard years in hard places that you would not have chosen. 
It may include abandonment and betrayal by people you thought were your friends. It may include losing a job someday over policies you cannot in good conscience support and that you are required to affirm as a condition of employment. It definitely will include your money. It will definitely include your time. It will definitely include your gifts and your talents. It definitely includes your body and what you do with it being made subject to God's will and Christ's command rather than your own body's desires. It will definitely include choosing what you take in with your eyes in accordance with the scriptures rather than in accordance with the culture. It will definitely include filtering what your mouth speaks through the grid of what the scripture commands. All these things have to come under the Lordship of Christ. Amen? All of them. Your mind, your body, your mouth, your eyes, your job, your money, your talents, everything comes under the Lordship of Christ. If you make the swap, you will not be like the fools who start something they couldn't finish. And you will not be the king who gets conquered because he's too foolish to realize that he doesn't have the resources to withstand what is coming. Instead, you will have great reward. But, the, but before there is the crown, there is the cross. And if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to teach other people to be disciples of Jesus, I've got... Think about 16 people in a class on Sunday in, during Sunday school uh, started today learning about how to help people follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? How do I teach somebody else to follow Jesus? If you're going to be the kind of person who does that, it's going to be a cost, but the cost is worth it. Amen? The cost is worth it. And there is a reward. And the reward is Jesus. And He's worth it all. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's any person here who has never personally put their trust in Jesus Christ and who has said, I will stake my life on the claims and the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sin, and who was raised from the dead to give me new life, Father, I pray that they would not simply recognize historical facts of Jesus' death and resurrection, but that they would lay hold of it for themselves and understand that though there are costs, they pale in comparison to the glory that is coming. Father, we will have light and momentary affliction here, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. But it is far surpassed by the eternal weight of glory. And Father, I pray that we would all make the trade and follow Jesus all the way to the end. Because Jesus laid down His life for us. And Father, we, we thank You for Your Word today. We pray that we would 
Um, be encouraged in it and challenged by it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.